Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and history. 2024 is a presidential election year, and I intend to make a series of podcasts that will cover all aspects of the campaign from both the Democratic and Republican perspectives. Today's topic is expanding the Republican tent with more Black, Hispanic, and young people. Our speaker is Patrick Ruffini, who is the author of the book, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP. Patrick is the founder of Echelon Insights that uses digital analytics to improve polling and strategy for Republican candidates. I want to hear from Patrick if voter behavior is entrenched and whether the Republicans can persuade Black and Hispanic voters to vote like their white working class brethren. Buckle up. Patrick, can you please begin with your six-minute remarks? Party of the People is a book about how the parties seem to be on their way to a role reversal in terms of who they historically represent. The Democratic Party had this strong association as the party of the downtrodden, of the poor, of the working man. And those people and those voters are increasingly starting to vote for Republicans. 20 years ago, you had something like a 40-point divide between the richest voters and the poorest voters in the electorate in terms of who they supported. The very wealthiest voters tended to lean much more Republican than the poorest voters. Now that has really been compressed almost down to nothing. Just to clarify for the audience, 20 years ago, America's wealthiest cohort used to vote 70% Republican and 30% Democratic, and the poorest voted the reverse with 30% Republican and 70% Democratic. But today, both the rich and the poor are evenly split at 50% for each party. Whether or not you have earned a college diploma or not tends to be the big dividing line between the parties that has replaced income. And it's really now the Republicans who have the momentum among voters who are on the bottom of educational attainment. The Democrats desperately seem to want to make the case for themselves um, based on social tolerance, racial tolerance, on protecting institutions, protecting democracy. And it's less so about pushing economic populism, about standing up for the rights of working people. On the Republican side, you don't hear very much Republicans providing this limited government economic philosophy or providing this argument that we saw during the Reagan era and through the Republican Revolution with Newt Gingrich really reducing the size and scope of the federal government. Now it's mostly been replaced by cultural arguments. So there is a right of center cultural push, the anti-wokeness debate. And as a result, you know, who is in the parties is changing pretty dramatically in 2016. Donald Trump wins an election nobody thought he could win because he is able to consolidate support among white working class voters. Now, why does that matter? Now, white working class voters are over 40% of the electorate. They're the largest group demographically in the electorate. I mean, everybody had written them off as this declining group, but it turns out they're the largest group. And if you can win enough support in that constituency, you win states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. 
Fast forward to 2020, and mostly it's a replay. Most of the states go the same way. But Trump does gain some support among Hispanics. He gains some support among African-Americans. And so you see this realignment of working-class voters extend to working-class voters of color. In 2024, trends among white voters seem to be played out. I mean, if you have the third successive election with Donald Trump as the Republican nominee, people are pretty set and fixed in their reactions. This election that is happening in a period of high anxiety, high dissatisfaction, inflation, rising housing costs. And you're seeing in the polls right now a further realignment of those non-white voters, working class voters, towards the Republican Party. We are potentially headed for another surprise to the results of the 2024 election. In our national politics, statewide voting patterns change, and they can change quickly. In 1976, the Ford-Carter presidential election, the national map was the opposite that it is today. California was red and Texas was blue. Why do analysts place so much faith that voting patterns change slowly? People have bought into this idea of polarization. People have gotten maybe too bought in to this cognitive trap of saying, well, just because this has been the trend for 15, 20 years, this is going to continue to be the case indefinitely into the future. Or because a demographic group has voted the same way for the last few election cycles, that they're going to continue basically along that track. There could be a change like you saw in 2020 along the Rio Grande Valley, like you saw in Miami, like you saw in 2016 in the Rust Belt. And there can be surprises. Changes could be bigger in either direction. In a pro-democratic direction, they could mean that they happen in a pro-republican direction. When people are trying to predict the future, there's always a tendency to try to downplay, you know, the polls. If polls are saying, yeah, there could be a potentially a big shift in one demographic group, that that's somehow not real. That that's somehow an artifact, uh, polling error, response bias, or things like that. When in fact, more often than not, we're surprised on election night that something has swung way more than we expected it to. America is a big country, and you expect a few communities to have massive swings in partisanship each election cycle. In your book, you highlight Winneka, Illinois. This is the town where Home Alone was filmed. It's also the town where I attended New Trier Public High School. The town is 95% white and 3% Asian. It is one of the wealthiest suburbs in the United States, and practically everyone graduated from college. From 2012 to 2020, Winneka went from voting for Mitt Romney over Obama by 12 points to supporting Joe Biden over Trump by 36 points, a margin swing of 48 points in eight years. What happened? I've lived in some places like that. They're a huge outlier being highly educated, upper income. This was where the Home Alone house was. And how much money did that family need to afford all the things and the nice house and the plane trip to Europe, right? And that's emblematic of that community. What we saw in the 2016 and 2020 elections was that those types of areas that used to be representative of this very upper crust Republican sensibility was embodied, I think, by Mitt Romney as a candidate who himself embodied the sense of noblesse oblige, this wealthy 
CEO type manager fix it kind of Republican in contrast to the boorish and vulgar Donald Trump. It turns out when you make that switch from Romney to Trump to a radically different type of candidate, people move, people change their view. People like me who live in the D.C. suburbs, who live where we don't come across very many people in our intimate social circles who didn't graduate from college. We were unable to see that there were significant sections of the election that would be drawn to a candidate like Trump where they were not drawn to a candidate like Romney. All we saw was the downside of a candidate like Trump rather than the potential electoral upside. And that led many people, myself included, to be pretty surprised on election night 2016. So you had Winnetka shift by 40 points. You had communities in southern Illinois shift dramatically in the other direction. And you had places in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa, throughout the Midwest shift pretty dramatically towards Trump because they are very much a place not like Winnetka, Illinois. Let's use Ohio as an example. Obama beat Romney by three in 2012. And in 2016, Trump beat Hillary by eight. That is an 11-point Republican swing in the context of a two-point nationwide Republican improvement. White working-class voters in places like Youngstown or rural people in Ohio preferred Trump to the country club Romney candidate. That's pretty ironic, given that Trump owns country clubs. He's a traitor to his class. He's cultivated this idea that I'm the one who knows how the system is rigged because I rigged it. I contributed all this money to Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer. So I know, and they were doing my bidding. And now I am going to show you, the working class American, and I'm going to help you because I know how the system is completely broken. And I think you can make fun of that, but that resonated with a lot of people and that idea of him flaunting his wealth is something that went to a certain brashness, maybe tackiness that people find appealing. It's a different approach than somebody who is maybe on the defensive about their wealth and somebody like Romney. I want to push back against the importance of specific candidates representing the Republican Party. I would not expect rural or white working class voter support to differ significantly for Trump relative to Haley. Trump was a catalyst for an underlying impetus in the electorate. When you look at countries throughout the Western world, it's not just the United States, you have right-of-center parties becoming more populist. You have immigration across Western countries pushing politics in a populist direction. Politics is changing in such a way that this kind of alignment that we're seeing now was inevitable. It's just it was delayed, right? Because when Romney put a more upper crust country club Republican face to the Republican Party, he did underperform among working class voters. We're kind of on this track towards more populist politics, this class role reversal. It's happening in the UK, Australia, not just the United States. But then you have Trump who really is just so on the nose in terms of exemplifying it. It's not like any of this is specific to Trump or any of this is new. In the 1960s, with the realignment around the counterculture, right, around Vietnam, 
the working class shifted pretty dramatically away from the Democratic Party in the 1960s. And then it stops until 2000. And then you see another shift into this more urban-rural divide, non-college-educated voters voting Republican. And then Trump takes it even further. If Nikki Haley's the nominee, she will no doubt do better than Donald Trump would do among white college-educated suburbanites. There's no question she would do better. And that would be enough, I think, to almost guarantee her a win. She just gets voters that Trump doesn't. But the basic template for a Republican coalition is Trump's template, right? The coalition itself is becoming more geared towards populist issues. So I think Nikki Haley would do better than Trump among college-educated voters, absolutely. But she'd also be a very different candidate than Mitt Romney was. White working-class voters prefer Republicans to Democrats by 70 to 30. How is that possible, and why did that happen? It's amazing because you had a party that was defined for so long as the party for the working class, that we stand up for unions. Biden comes from that era and tried to recapture it with going to the picket line in Michigan for the UAW. But Biden is along for the ride in a party that is becoming increasingly college-educated, in which the policy divides really are not about trying to create economic opportunity for people in the bottom half in the same way in the campaign, they're going to be talking about Dobbs. They're going to be talking about democracy. They're going to be talking about these issues that it's really their base wants to talk about. I start the book in one of my early chapters. You know, you have that sign. You are driving around the suburbs and urban areas. In this house, we believe love is love, Black Lives Matter, right? All these social causes. You saw that a lot in 2020, especially around me. And I'm like, you know, where is raising the minimum wage, where is fighting economic inequality? You have an aging cohort of Democratic Party leaders who still, I think, have those instincts to try and recapture that old working class vote, Biden pushing for infrastructure, right? I mean, I think he is very old school in that regard. But in terms of the mechanics of the actual campaign and what voters are going to be hearing, I think it's probably going to be very different. It seems like they've settled at least initially on this message, right, of Dobbs and democracy, because that's a reflection, right, partially of prioritizing the base over swing voters who do feel a lot of economic anxiety right now. But I think it's a mistake. In 2004, Thomas Frank wrote his book entitled What's the Matter with Kansas? about how Kansas voters were mistakenly voting for Republicans because their financial interests were more aligned with the Democratic Party agenda. Why is this? That was an all-consuming question, right, in 2004 for Democrats. We're starting to see this shift with rural America. In 2004, it genuinely bothered a person like Thomas Frank to see this large working-class constituency starting to defect to the Republican Party. I think it's just that misconception of what the self-interest is of the working class in terms of who is going to offer the biggest government programs, right? I spend a lot of time talking to voters in focus groups, and you know, almost no one brings up the size of the government or benefits. But the thing that really matters to people is, do I have a good job? What do things at the grocery store cost? What is the price of gas? 
what's my economy looking like? Because people don't aspire to be beneficiaries of government programs. They aspire to have a good job, to have economic opportunity, to see their kids moving up. And right now, they're just not seeing that from the current economy. And the instinct within the Democratic Party has been to invalidate, to dismiss, to minimize those real struggles that working class families are articulating and the economic anxiety that they're articulating. Democrats won the popular vote in every presidential election since 1992, except for 2004. Some say the Democrats have a demographic destiny as white voters are a declining percentage of the American population. Is the future looking bright for the Democrats? Yeah, I mean, this was all encapsulated in a book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, that was written in 2004 by Rui Teixeira and John Judas, who recently have both come out and said, no, it's no longer going to be an emerging Democratic majority. The Democratic Party faces very serious challenges. They've written a book, in fact, very recently, came out the same day as mine, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The full recantation of that hypothesis. And what do they say went wrong, right? Because they were, in many ways, the originators of the hypothesis. They were actually making a more nuanced argument that recognized that white working class voters would continue to be a plurality of the electorate. And so in order for a Democratic majority to emerge, you couldn't completely piss off white working class voters. You needed to maintain the Clinton era margins with white working class voters. And that hasn't happened. And so you have the largest group demographically within the electorate. The bottom has fallen out for Democrats. In the Obama era, they were able to make it up with black voters and Hispanic voters because of who Obama was as a candidate. But since the Obama era, they've seen a dramatic drop-off in turnout in those communities as well. As you have a candidate like Trump in a party like the Republicans in the Trump era, that is able to appeal to a broader segment of the electorate with more populist themes that isn't running on the old Reagan economics. You look at a state like California, right, that has undergone a lot of demographic change. I would argue that the biggest reason why California is such a democratic state is not because of Hispanics, it's because white voters changed their views in a place like Orange County. They've completely flipped. Texas just recently became plurality Hispanics in terms of the population. That doesn't mean there will be plurality Hispanics in terms of the electorate, because talk about Hispanics crossing the border, those people can't vote. Maybe their children will, but that will be decades down the road. In history, we saw waves and waves of immigration. Italians, Irish were Democrats in big cities and were the mainstay of the Democratic Party. And over time, they shifted to a majority Republican group. You're going to have a Hispanic community that is more middle class, more embedded in the mainstream of American society, and it's going to be more of a 50-50 group without the kind of democratic advantage that you see today. White working class voters support Republicans by 40%, but black working class voters support Democrats by 80 Why should this voting be dramatically different by race if their political and economic interests are similar? Will whites and blacks shift to voting like each other if they have similar education attainment, social class, and income. There's a lot of legacy in history behind why black voters are so democratic, and that starts in the 1960s. And historically, Hispanic voters, too, have leaned democratic. 
I think that the shifts we're seeing are not necessarily going to shift overnight, but on a long enough time horizon, it could. But over a four-year time horizon, you typically see minor shifts. But my argument is that they're just moving in the same direction. Republicans are adding votes from those communities while they're losing votes from the college-educated white voters. When you look at the views of black voters, they're largely similar in most cases to the median voter overall when you talk about their views on policy. We have to coalesce and consolidate our votes in one political party to gain some measure of political power. There's a huge social stigma attached to defecting towards the Republican Party. In the same way, I visited the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. In that community, which is nearly 100% Hispanic, there was that same, we all vote Democrat. If you pull a Republican ballot, then you're a social outcast. Star County, Texas shifted by 55 points in the 2020 election. It can happen, but you know it's not to say it will happen. But I think the trends are there. The trends are also towards greater assimilation of non-white groups into the American mainstream. You're seeing fewer and fewer people living in these 100% minority racial enclaves anymore, both black and Hispanic. And so the ability for one side to enforce kind of a racial voting norm is going down. But I think there's still a lot of history to overcome, and you're not going to overcome it in one election cycle. Do black Democrats hold more conservative policy views than white Democrats. When you look within the Democratic Party, there's some pretty substantial divides. Democrats are to the right by double digits of white Democrats and particularly white college-educated Democrats on every issue. It's not that they're all like politically conservative. I mean, they're pretty politically mixed. They're pretty moderate. But on the margins, that does create room for defection. I have a little wonky graph in my book that if you survey black voters on a lot of different issues and then you build an ideology score for them based upon, all right, you ask them 10 policy questions and they answer, give six conservative answers. Okay, there's 60% conservative. So it's a more linear, let's say, or nuanced view of where they stand ideologically. Those types of voters are voting... Democrat by 80 to 90% margins if you're black. If you're white, those types of voters are voting 70% Republican. So particularly in that ideological space, it's a huge gap. But if I were betting, it's going to move in a little bit more of a conservative and Republican voting direction, the gravitational pull of ideology over time. Just in the same way in 2020, if you just filtered Black conservatives, Hispanic conservatives, Asian American conservatives, those particular groups compared to 2016 swung 35 to 40 points to the right. In 2016, in the days before the presidential election, Hillary Clinton decided not to campaign in Wisconsin. Would you recommend that Trump go to a black church in Milwaukee? I think should. It's more the symbolism of that. It's not that, you know, you're going to flip that community. There was a report, actually, he was planning on doing a rally in the South Bronx. It wasn't even Wisconsin, right? That's a state that he's probably not going to win. Politicians should do those things. And by the way, Joe Biden should go to a rural community. You should have candidates who, on both sides, 
are willing to make a bid for votes on the other side of the ideological spectrum, I think that's just a better politics. But I think you absolutely should do that. For so long, the African-American vote has been written off. For Republicans, it's a persuasion vote because you have, again, people who take pretty moderate positions, but they don't necessarily vote in a moderate way. Trump typically speaks to a very friendly crowd. Can Trump manage a hostile crowd in Milwaukee? That says a lot about your political skill to play off of potential opponents, to maybe use that to rally your supporters, particularly if they're being rude or heckling. I mean, sometimes that doesn't come off very well for the hecklers. But I do think you have to be nimble and on your feet. And the politics of the day, which takes place entirely within safe spaces for one political party or another, I mean, is increasingly just a very dispiriting type of politics because, you know, we're not really seeing any genuine attempt at persuasion on the other side. And I think that goes for both parties. In 2016, Trump used to go to his rallies without prepared remarks. Is he scripted now? Will his campaign be professionally managed in 2024? What we saw in 2016 was Trump is more entertaining, he's engaging, and I think that you very rarely see politicians who compete on that dimension. So it's all, again, about who has the most focus group-tested approach that appeals to the most voters in a calculating way. And... Trump was competing on an entirely different dimension of culture, of being this brash, frankly entertaining, what's he going to say next, being unpredictable, spontaneous, that led to him to run circles around the entire Republican field and then overperform in the general election. And we thought it was all a liability, right? That idea of him being completely unscripted and those rallies. Trump is more prepared remarks these days. He has more of a staff. He has a professional apparatus that I think has served him pretty well in this primary campaign in terms of organizationally outfoxing, in terms of endorsements, going into DeSantis' backyard and grabbing members of his congressional delegation, which he could never have envisioned him doing in 2016. Part of that is, yeah, he was the incumbent president, so he has access to more people and more staff and more expertise now. 2016 Trump is a little bit different. In the past few presidential elections, the Democrats have done extremely well among young voters. But recent polling shows that the Democratic advantage with young voters is shrinking. What's going on? So I think it's part and parcel of a shift among young Latino voters and African-American voters towards the Republicans. In the Obama years, where it was sort of this natural inevitability that young voters would be for a Democratic Party led by him. We develop these heuristics about what young voters look like based upon an entirely different set of young voters that did not exist as a part of the electorate 10 years ago. So they're new entrants to the electorate. I just think they're very alienated from Biden, alienated from the Democratic Party, and are maybe up for grabs by a third-party candidate. So I think there's probably a lot of people holding out. A lot of people will probably come home in the end. But I do think you're going to see something a little bit more that's not going to be the same old margins that we've seen in past elections. Will Biden's support of Israel in Gaza hurt his election prospects? 
we overestimate how much it affects turnout. With the Israel issue, it's really more of a question of third-party defection than, let's say, an outright vote for Trump. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to partisanship? I'm optimistic about how the country is less racially polarized. And I think that that runs against the conventional wisdom and it runs against the media discourse and narrative. You see decreasing racial residential segregation. You see rising incomes, particularly among Hispanics, Asians. You see Hispanics will probably be right in the middle economically of America. I think there's a positive and hopeful story to tell about what's happening in the country and how voters of different backgrounds are just coming closer together. You see it in rising rates of intermarriage. You see it in people living closer together. And I think that's what my book is about just as much as it is about the politics. Thanks, Patrick, for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was, did the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, commit treason? Our speaker was Cynthia Nicoletti, who is a legal historian and law professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. Cynthia is the author of the book, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. I chose this topic for this podcast because the facts of Jefferson Davis's case relate to the ongoing legal battles for Donald Trump. Davis's case turns on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment which is the exact same section that has been applied by Colorado and Maine to prevent Donald Trump from being on their presidential ballot. Davis was captured at the end of the Civil War and was indicted for treason under penalty of death. Cynthia discussed whether Davis committed treason, could Davis get a fair trial, and should the union have skipped the prosecution altogether and simply shot him. I would now like to make a plug for next week's podcast with Philip Wallach of the American Enterprise Think Tank. Philip is the author of the book, Why Congress?, which describes the role of the legislature and the American constitutional framework and why we need to force Congress to legislate instead of delegating the responsibilities to the executive branch, the bureaucracy, and the courts. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. Please subscribe to weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.